a brief history of the kings, and it will be brief, with the subtitle, Taking Matters into Our Own Hands or Waiting on the Lord. And that will be a theme that we see as we look at specific verses about these kings. And these verses will be root causes for dire circumstances that have happened throughout history. And in many cases, the the root cause of this problem, this taking matters into our own hands, isn't just a simple matter of impatience, like I think I could do it faster, um, but it's a pride issue that, that we don't wait on the Lord. So, this is a trick question. In what book would you expect to find the history of the kings? Kings. And keeping in, the, in mind that at some point, First and Second Samuel was part of a, a book that they called Kings or Kingdoms. There was a first, second, third, and fourth. Uh, you would be correct. However, we want to start at the beginning. And these, starting in Genesis, are examples of pre-kings who took matters into their own hands rather than waiting on the Lord. And so in a sense, this is a history bigger than just kings, but we can, uh, we can work through this history so that we can start at the beginning and see what has happened. So starting with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, in verse 6, she saw a tree to be desired to make one wise. But yet by verse 8, the Lord came walking in the garden, it says. That, in other words, waiting for the Lord to be walking in the garden in fellowship with Him, would have made them wise. And I realize that verses are not a measure of time, in sort of in the same sense that light years are not a measure of time. But two verses, we get the impression that the Lord came, the King James calls it in the cool of the day, walking in the garden every day, and that they had fellowship with God prior to the fall. So when Satan lies to her and says, um, the tree will make them wise, the fruit of it, they, and that they would be like gods, the exact opposite was true. Had they stayed and walked with the Lord in the cool of the day, every single day, they would have become more like God. But they couldn't wait two verses. Now Noah waited, but right after the flood, when we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, verse 4, they say, let us build a tower whose, whose top may reach unto heaven. They couldn't wait to reach heaven God's way. They were going to do it on their own. Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 16, at this point they were called Abram and Sarai. Uh, 
But Sarah's advice was going into my handmaid that I may obtain children. Well, that was in response to a promise from God that they that she would bear children. But they couldn't wait, and I believe it was ten years that it that they waited and then God's promise did come. In the meantime, they got Ishmael. We'll circle back to Ishmael here in a second. Another instance in Genesis is Jacob and Rebecca. Now Rebecca's his his mom. And there was a blessing that should have gone to the older of the two sons, which was not Jacob, but the other son, Esau. And we don't know that God didn't want it to turn out that way. We certainly know that none of this was any surprise to God. He, he worked with what they did, but there are consequences. Jacob's name means deceiver, and he deceived his father and received a blessing that didn't belong to him. Now Esau sort of had spurned this blessing earlier, so he's not completely innocent in this. But the consequences of these non-waiters, let's call them, well, Esau becomes the na- a nation called Edom. And from the Edomites, we get the Herods in the New Testament. Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa. So, uh, one made an attempt on the Messiah's life by killing what he thought were all uh, of the Hebrew children. Uh, one of his descendants beheaded John the Baptist. That's where these are serious consequences. Back to Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael was called a wild donkey of a man. That's why we're fighting the Muslims today. Those are the descendants of Ishmael. One more example. Aaron and the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Moses was gone for 40 days. Now let's suppose they waited a few days. Let's even give them 10 days. And that would leave 30, which in the Jewish calendar each month is a 30-day month. So after, let's say, 10 days, they start in. Where... As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron, make us a god. I don't know how long he was gone, less than 40 days, because he was back at the end of the 40 days, so they couldn't wait a month. But, and then Aaron puts this, I assume, a mold into the fire, but when he describes it, he said, out came this calf. Not, I built this thing because I'm the one who took the gold and put it in the mold and put it in the fire and then it took it out. But out came this golden calf because they couldn't wait for 40 or 30 days. Well, before we go to the actual kings, I want us to look at who the people were and where they come from that would be Asking, not just ruled by these kings, but as Micah read in Samuel chapter 1 Samuel 8, asking for this king. Well, these people and the promise of these people starts with Adam and Eve and 
as early as Genesis chapter 3, the trouble begins. And again, verses and chapters aren't exactly a measure of time. Sometimes they are events that happen consecutively and sometimes time has passed. But Genesis 3.15 describes a promised seed. This is God predicting the future based on Adam and Eve desiring to be wise without doing it God's way, but taking matters into their own hands. God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. But this is... It's a curse, but it's a promise. It's, a, it's the promise of a seed. The seed of the woman that will become the king of kings that we've just celebrated at Christmas. And then to take that history a little further, the history of these people, we get to Genesis 12, and again, he's called Abram, but he is Abraham. And the promise gets expanded in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 say, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So that is a promise, and it gets repeated in chapter 13. I'll read 14 through 16. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where there thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Now we'll take a little side trip here with me now. What does the word forever mean? Well, you need to know in the ancient Hebrew, forever means forever. So, a land was promised to the children of Israel forever. And we get this from, from Genesis 12 and 13, a land, a blessing, and a seed forever. And there's also another promise that I read and it's Genesis 12:3 I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee That's forever That's not a political statement that's a biblical statement about the nation of Israel and about the promises of God And then in in Genesis 32 verse 28 we get the first mention of the name Israel where Jacob is renamed Israel by God. And the, the interpretation of the name Israel that I like comes from the Wycliffe uh, Encyclopedia. 
that it means he persists with God. He wrestled with God in this uh, passage, but the nation of Israel, he persists with God. So we've got, we're up to Jacob now. We don't have any kings yet. But we've got Jacob renamed Israel. Twelve sons. Joseph, one of those sons, goes down to Egypt. Eventually the whole family gets down there. They're well received. Joseph has been prime minister, to use a modern term, of, of Egypt. And then after the favor of the Egyptian pharaoh passes, 400 years go by where they're enslaved. And then Moses, and Moses takes them 40 years in the desert. And then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And before we can get to the kings themselves, we need to see the very last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So Micah read the whole chapter, and I didn't. He found out about it last night, and I. He didn't ask me, and I didn't have time to coach him on the pronunciation of any of those words. There weren't too many uh, names. He did an excellent job, but. Based on that, who was supposed to be the king? God. God was supposed to be their king. Now, do you think their reaction took God by surprise? No. Not only did it not take Him by surprise, He had already written about this. And He, he gave this to Moses before they entered the promised land. So before Joshua, before the time of the judges, before this happens in 1 Samuel 8, God tells this through Moses to the children of Israel while they're still in the desert. And He says some things in Deuteronomy 17. He talks about when when this is going to happen. Starting in verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. And then there's some instructions about this, these kings. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And 
And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now we're going to circle back to that. So if you're flipping through all these verses, keep a finger or a bookmark in Deuteronomy 17. So, from 1 Samuel 8, we, we get this request. Samuel is offended. God says, I'm the one that's offended here. You, you just calm down. But he's, it's kind of this, so you want a king, huh? Well, I'm going to give you a king. Saul looked perfect, taller than anybody else, handsome, strong, warrior. But here's your king. It's kind of some of the questions and the advice that we give in the construction business and plumbing that people don't choose to follow. I, I don't say to them, but there's this phrase, it's your funeral. Um... That's what this is like. So, this is a setup. God knows how this is going to play out, and it's for the purpose of teaching the children of Israel. But, Saul's first big mistake is a matter of him taking matters into his own hands instead of waiting. Now, he should have waited for Samuel... Samuel speaks for the Lord. It's not waiting on the Lord. But it's take... What Saul did in uh, 1 Samuel 13 was he took upon himself the office of a priest. Now God was very clear. The priests come from the tribe of Levi. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's been chosen as the king. But he's not to be a priest. And we read in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel... Saul goes in and he performs this sacrifice. Now that should be a good thing. We want a sacrifice to God. But we want to do it God's way. Samuel was meant to meet him there, and Samuel was late. But the Scripture says as soon as Saul was finished offering this sacrifice, Samuel showed up. He couldn't wait. I mean, okay, it takes maybe a couple hours to get the wood ready, get the animal ready. I don't even know if or how he would have known to pray. He's not a Levite. He's not a priest. So a couple hours he couldn't wait for Saul to show up, but no, he's going to take matters into his own hands. And in chapter 13, starting in verse 13, this is the result. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And that is right on the heels of not waiting a few hours for Samuel to show up to perform this sacrifice. That's the result. Those are the consequences of Saul taking matters into his own hands. 
he not only lost his kingdom, but he doesn't get to he doesn't get to go down to the grave, king. Well, technically, yes, he does. But the, but the God's chosen kings out there, anointed, while Saul's still on the throne, and then there's all this turmoil that we're going to see as we get to King David. Now, in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed. He's picked out. This time, he doesn't look like the king. He's the youngest of seven brothers. He's just a little guy. He's anointed, and somehow, and this how is what we want to look at today, David knew how to wait. David knew it was God's plan that David would be the king. But Saul's still out there. He's still on the throne. He's still wearing a crown. And David waits. And the Psalms are a great source of seeing this ability of David to wait. Um, By the time we get done, we'll see, basically, pick any psalm. David is credited with writing over half of the psalms and specifically named as the author. The Holy Spirit's the author. But David and these psalms and his ability to wait. Saul was after his life. And Saul was already already lost his kingdom. He just didn't know it yet. And David was supposed to be the king, but yet David waits. Psalm 25, 37, 69, there are all kinds all kinds of psalms that are about David waiting. And once I get to one that I want to read, Psalm 27, 14 says it this way. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know, we sing a song here that says, Strength will rise as I wait upon the Lord. Now, the world doesn't say that. That's not logical to the world. Waiting in strength. Strength is in acting. Strength is in up and doing something, not waiting. But when you're waiting on the Lord, He will strengthen your heart. I mean, that's, that's that verse. That song didn't just take a concept from Scripture. It took the exact verse, I think. So David has, as a young man even, this ability to wait. The New Testament calls David a prophet in Matthew 27 and says that David is a man after God's own heart in Acts. He delighted in God's law and he was able to wait. But David didn't finish well. David had some problems with his, with his kids. There was... Obviously, this uh, desire for for a son to take over for his father, and when your father's the king and he's wearing a golden crown, that probably looks real appealing. So those sons in the turmoil of David's later life weren't waiting 
Because when, when the dust settled and everything was all said and done, God's the one who chose which son of David's was going to be the next king. Not David. Not Jewish tradition that says the firstborn. By the time they were done, I think the first and secondborn were, were dead already as sons. And then even David himself later in his life becomes guilty of not waiting. And many of us are familiar with this passage. It's in 2 Samuel. And it's the beginning of a lot of turmoil and consequences that revolve around a woman named Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, 2, 3, and a little bit of 4 is what I'll read to you. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. Now, we're going to talk about the consequences of this. Now, clearly, God's plan was not disturbed by David taking matters into his own hands. But David already knew how to wait. As a young man promised the throne, he knows how to wait. And we'll get back to Psalms here. We're going to do some, a lot of circling back in this, which is good. He waited until God dealt with Saul instead of taking matters into his own hands like Saul had done, Jacob, Abram, fill in the blank, you, me. This time though, he wanted Bathsheba and he didn't wait to see what God wanted. So David committed adultery. Then she got pregnant. Then that, that escalated to David committing murder. Then there was, I mean, I don't know what Fox or CNN would make of this today, but there was a cover-up. Um, basically, he just flat out denied it. Kind of similar. Um, until God sends a prophet to rebuke him right to his face. And then the baby died. That first baby died. This whole mess of God, of David not waiting for God. But you know what? God still uses Solomon, who's the baby born after the baby that died, and another baby named Nathan to fulfill his perfect plan for a promised Messiah. And when we look in the Gospels, I'll just mention this. Each of the four Gospels, since we're on Messiah, we have, we have to be in the Gospels. Each of the four presents Christ in a different light. There's a different emphasis, there's a different role of this Christ. Matthew shows Christ as the King. Mark shows Christ as the servant. 
Luke was a physician. He shows Christ as the perfect man. He emphasizes the miracles more than the others do. John shows Christ as the Son of God, in fact, God. Now, when we look at the genealogies, and I know how people love these genealogies and the begats and all these mostly hard-to-pronounce names. Now, Matthew's genealogy does what Matthew's gospel does. It traces Christ as the king. That's his royal line, but it's also his legal... Joseph is his legal guardian, his father. And that's Joseph's line. Now, when you get to Luke, who's showing Christ as the perfect man, we get Christ's biological genealogy, which is Mary. And they break off, but they both go back to these two sons of David and Bathsheba, Solomon and Nathan. Now, Mark, who shows Christ as the servant, has no genealogy. Servants don't get a genealogy. Does John have a genealogy? I think it does. I think that's what John 1, 1 is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a genealogy of the Son of God, God. So in Matthew 1, 6, I think these also go backwards. One starts in the past and works and one starts in the present and works back. But in Matthew 1, 6, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. That's embedded in the genealogy of Christ. That's his kingly legal genealogy. Now those kings had their troubles, and we're going to get to that. In Luke 3.31... And here are, there are some names on this one. And this is in a long line. He didn't use the term begat. In the King James it says, which was the son of. And it's just one name after another. Uh, if you get a Bible on DVD or now you can even purchase an MP3 or a, an iPod that is the Bible. Or of course you can download onto any kind of devices. And you can even hear Johnny Cash read the New Testament. And there's a rhythm, there has to be, to the reading of this. I only want to read one verse. Which was the son of Melia, which was the son of Menan, which was the son of Mattatha, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of Jesse. The next verse, or excuse me, the son of David, which was the son of Jesse. This is the same David, the king. This is the same offspring, but this is Mary's, this is his biological genealogy. So they both go back to David and Bathsheba. So that's the amazing thing. And I'm not presupposing that I know what God intended. But it's almost as if had David waited, maybe he would have been able to have Bathsheba for his wife anyway. But he could have avoided adultery, murder, the dead baby, the denial. Maybe. I don't know what. All I know is it didn't interfere with God's plan one single bit. And that leads us to our next king. We've already spoken of his, his birth, his choosing, his place in the genealogy of Christ. And that is King 
King Solomon. God's choice. He received wisdom from God. But he multiplied everything that it said in Deuteronomy 7 not to. Horses, wealth, wives. So in 1 Kings 11, But King Solomon loved many strange women. I love the King James. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you. And this is why. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Solomon was promised a reign of peace. He was going to have a peaceful kingdom. He was going to be known as a king in time of peace. David had to fight all these wars. David's heart was that he would build a house, a permanent house, for what the tabernacle was when they were in the desert. The temple David wanted to build. God told him he had too much blood on his hands. Solomon's the one that got to build the temple. He was promised by God a reign characterized by peace. But he didn't wait for God's peace. He made peace treaties by marriage. He took God's promise and saved God the trouble of fulfilling it himself. He married Pharaoh's daughter. Well, now there's peace with Egypt because guess who's married? He married these other... And I mean, as a king, you're probably not going to date servants. You're going to date queens or princesses. I mean, it's not, it's not out of the question, but he, he multiplied these wives and created his own peace that wasn't God's peace. It's the classic self-fulfilling prophecy. Shakespeare's play, Macbeth, is... I don't know if it's modeled, but it it definitely deals with the self-fulfilling prophecy. And just as a side note, um, people mistake the idea that the eloquence of the King James was informed by the writings of Shakespeare. That is incorrect. The The work William Tyndale did on translating the first English Bible became the Geneva Bible, and that informed Shakespeare's eloquence. Macbeth, we, I mean, you could make proverb after proverb about not doing what he did. He was wandering, he wasn't wandering, he was traveling in the woods at night, and Shakespeare uses the term three weird sisters. That's almost like the strange wives of Solomon. Three weird sisters in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the night, 
You don't listen to these people. You don't stop and even chat with these people. You keep going. Not Macbeth. These weird sisters around this cauldron chanting odd things. He listens to them. They say, you know what? Someday you're going to be king. He goes back to the palace, tells his wife, these weird sisters out in the woods said someday I'd be king. The wife says, you know what you do? He's king's just sleeping in the next room. Go kill him. You'll be king. He did it. He, was, he, was, he had this almost uh, psychosis about being covered in blood from that point on through the play. Everything falls apart in his own life and in this kingdom because he was going to take care of fulfilling a prophecy. Again, don't listen to three weird sisters in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night. Don't even stop. But King Solomon, kind of the same thing. You'll be a king of peace. Well, I know how I'll get that done. We'll make a treaty with them by marriage and we'll do all this marrying. Well, how well do you think that worked out? Not very far in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out. Verse 9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord of Israel, which appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. And the other gods were from these other wives. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend, that means tear, the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding, in thy days I will not do it for David's, thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. We just got, we got rid of Saul, we had David. Solomon, he's the first one to have any peace in his kingdom. The turmoil of David being anointed and Saul trying to take his life because he was threatened, rightfully so, about the throne. The turmoil of Saul's descendants thinking that they should have an heir to the throne, which was clearly not God's plan. The turmoil David brought about on himself with Bathsheba and Uriah. And now this king of peace, and he lost it in one generation. Because he didn't wait for God's peace. He was going to help God out and get this taken care of. But he also didn't listen to all those other do not multiply from Deuteronomy 17. And we're even going to circle back to that again another time. So now the kingdom splits. And from now on in the kings, the south, which is called Judah, for David's sake. This repeats over and over again. God... He said forever. How long is forever? Forever. For David's sake, God preserves the kingdom of Judah. This is the southern kingdom. And in the process, God raises up eight good kings over the process of 20-some kings. But in the north, the new split kingdom called Israel, or sometimes called Samaria, zero good kings. 
For David's sake, Solomon gets to go down as king. But Solomon's son receives a fragment of what God had in store for them. The son's name is Rehoboam. He reigns in the south and um, in the north from out of nowhere. God chose this other man. His name is Jeroboam. Why those names have to sound similar, I don't know. They definitely were a couple of bones. There's no doubt about that. Now as this northern kingdom progresses, Jeroboam, their first king, is blamed for Israel's sin, for causing his whole country to sin, up until someone worse named Ahab comes along. Now, we're just sort of branched off here for a second on the northern. Does Jeroboam wait for God to establish his kingdom? God's the one who chose him. He knew he was splitting the kingdom from Solomon's descendants. He knew he already picked out this Jeroboam. He told him he would give him a kingdom. But does Jeroboam wait for God to establish this kingdom? You probably already know the answer to this, but the specific answer is in 1 Kings 12, starting in 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Remember, the temple is still in the south. Jeroboam's new kingdom doesn't have a a temple of God. And God had prescribed, this is how you worship me. You come to the temple in Jerusalem. But this is in Jeroboam's heart. He's afraid that the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And nobody said, those are just statues. Yeah, some did. They went back. Like he was afraid they would. They went back to Judah. And he set one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. North and south. Convenient locations. You almost imagine drive-up sacrifice windows to make this all convenient. He never prays to God to be taught how, God, you separated these kingdoms, you gave me a peace, I don't have the temple, I don't have Jerusalem, God, what do you want me to do? Never does that. He just makes some golden calves. Takes matters into his own hands. And as a result, zero good kings. And we're even going to see how they go down harder when God is done than even for David's sake, the kingdom of Judah does. No good kings. And he personally is blamed for the sins of Israel. And every king that comes after him until Ahab, it's they walked in the sins of Jeroboam. I mean, that's not what you want to be famous for. Okay, we're going to fast forward now. 
And this may seem like a side trip, but we're going to tie it in. King Josiah. Now this is an incident that's going to circle us right back to Deuteronomy 17. And King Josiah takes the throne at the ripe old age of eight years old because his father was assassinated. 1 Kings 22, starting in 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law. Found the book of the law? How did they lose it? In the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and read it, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe came to the king and brought the king word again and said, Thy servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of them that do the work, that have the oversight of the house of the Lord. So wait a minute, now Hilkiah found the book, but he handed it to the scribe who's got to go in front of the king and explain this. The scribe goes in front of the king, good news, bad news, he tells him the good news first. And Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. Well, that's kind of an understatement. This is the book, this is the book that Moses wrote. This is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the book of the law. By now this may even contain David's Psalms, the book of Job, uh, any of the prophets that lived. This is the Bible. We found a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, and it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priests, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all which is written concerning us. They found the book of the law. But wait a minute. What do they mean, the book? In Deuteronomy 17, God said that the king was to make a copy of this book of the law. Like they copied everything back then by hand, but not a scribe of the king. The king was supposed to do this himself so that he had hand cramps and that he could better memorize this word of God. There should be a library of these books by now. If we counted Saul there, up to Josiah's father, there should be 14 copies of this. And obviously the original, if there was only one, would have been in the temple. I imagine this library slash museum where these 14 copies are there and Amon... Josiah's father can take him, and they didn't have a lot of time. He was eight when his father died. But he could take this eight-year-old boy that was going to be the king and say, look, son, there's King David's Bible. He wrote that with his own hand. There's King Solomon's. You could open it up and see what their handwriting was like. That these, his forefathers had written each one their own copy, like it was supposed to be. But that's not what this says. They found the book of the law. 
hold up your book. And if you're holding up something electronic, that's a, it's the Word of God. It, do, it doesn't matter what form it's in. So don't be embarrassed if it's electronic. Now if your book is missing, or like you didn't bring it, well, I'll just leave that with you. Okay, let's get to the bitter end of these kings. Israel, the north. Jeroboam took matters into his own hands, didn't figure out what God wanted him to do, just built some golden calves, convenient locations, drive up windows. They fall first. They don't last as long as the southern kingdom. For David's sake, God preserved them. And they fall to the Assyrians, a more cruel and scattering defeat. Now those ten or so, depending on how you divide them up, those tribes, I don't think they're lost. In the book of Revelation, twelve tribes are regrouped and numbered. So clearly God knows where those tribes are. But there's another thing. James addresses his book to the twelve tribes that are scattered. Not to any lost tribes or to only two or one and a half that survived. Not to Judah, but to the twelve tribes that are scattered. That's James 1.1. Okay, now the southern kingdom. For David's sake, Judah falls later and lighter. The Babylonians have conquered the Assyrians. They're less cruel. They're less violent. They take these people from Judah more or less intact and take them to Babylon. Then God allows the Persians to conquer the Babylonians and they start letting them come back. That's for David's sake. So here we are today with this historical record of non-waiting and clearly seeing the consequences. Eve didn't wait for God. Nimrod at Babel didn't wait. Abram and Sarai didn't wait for God. Aaron and the children of Israel. Saul, David did wait, then he didn't. Solomon, Jeroboam, etc. didn't wait for God. Well, let's look at an interesting question. How did David know how to wait? Now, I don't know that you're going to find that in the Kings, but I know that you can find it in the Psalms. C.I. Schofield says this about the Psalms. They are revelations of truth, not abstractly, but in terms of human experience. The truth revealed is built into the emotions desires and sufferings of the people of God by the circumstances through which they pass. That's a nice little commercial for the Psalms. So, for us, the Psalms are even still history. But David has a way in the Psalms of actually using history. He uses the history of how God worked in his life before to gain hope for the future. And we can do that. We can use David's life, but we can use our own life. How God worked in our lives before should give us hope for the future. 
So all David really has to do is remember. And now, we're, we're, this is a nice mixed congregation. There are young people here, but there are aging people here. And to use the word remember may have a different meaning. But you know what? It doesn't. Because as much as, even at my age, I'll walk into a room and go, what did I even come in here for? How, how fast any of us, young, old, forget. It's the same. It's the same with us as it was with them. But we have to be, we have to be able to wait to be able to remember God. If we're just going to save God the trouble and fix problems, we're going to end up, or even help God deliver blessings. Like, I mean, Jeroboam was given a kingdom. That should have been a blessing. But he didn't wait for God to tell him how to order it, so it became a curse. Solomon, king of peace, blessing. No, ruined it. Didn't wait. Well, it really doesn't matter where you go in the Psalms to find instruction on how to wait and how to have hope. And we keep talking about David. David wrote over half of these Psalms. But we can, I mean, we can just tiptoe through these. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. C.S. Lewis compared this word in Hebrew, this delight, as something that was delicious. Thou shalt not steal? Good, but I don't... Is that delicious to me? I don't know if I have what David had. And in his law doth he meditate day and night... Psalm 2, anyone, just verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 3, 4. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and He heard me out of His holy hill. 4, 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. And on and on. I wrote it. I gave you one verse at least all the way through Psalm 10. And then really... Psalm 1, 1 through 56 to the end are full of this hope. They're full of David knowing how to wait and finding strength because he remembered what God did in the past. And he faced some ugly things. There was a lot of military. He had too much blood on his hands to build the temple. That's not an easy thing to have. But he always found hope for the future because of the strength that the Lord had in his life in the past. So is this message about waiting and not taking matters into our own hands or about the Word? Well, it's both. You're not going to know how to wait or when to wait. You're not even going to know to wait without the Word. Charles Stanley said that you can't just get God's Word into your head. You need it in your heart. But he said you can't get it into your heart unless you don't first have it in your head. And you can't get it at all if you don't read it. 
And you can't read it if you don't even have one or don't take it off the shelf. Hopefully we can take away two lessons from this history, mostly of kings, but this, this history. We know the trouble that comes from taking matters into our own hands. We've seen it in all these people from Genesis through and the consequences that last on into the New Testament with those Herods or Ishmael to this day. We know we don't want to end up like Macbeth with blood on our hands or David with that and a dead baby or Solomon with 300 wives and a split kingdom or someone who brings another golden calf into this world or an Ishmael or a Herod. And we know that in order not to do those things, we need to wait on the Lord. And the second thing is, we don't want to lose that book. That's how we know how to wait. That's how we know that we're saved. That's how we know that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I think uh, Lamentations says it very well. Three, this is, uh, this is other poetry. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. David cried out to God. Jeremiah cried a lot. But in the midst, I mean they named the book Lamentations. This is going to be sadness. In the midst, in the middle of this book, chapter 3 starting in 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. See, he's got to remember, and now he's going to say what he recalls. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Now when he says, the Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, the world says the Lord helps those who help themselves, not wait. And when he says, wait for the salvation of the Lord, now... He's talking about being saved from these circumstances. We, we can wait in a circumstance that we're in with trouble financially, relationally. We can wait for God to save us from this trouble. But the salvation of our souls is not to be, wait, to be waited for. The salvation of our soul is in an instant and the rest of our life is our walk with God where we have the opportunity to wait and we have the opportunity to read our word to get comfort and hope to be able to wait and we also have the free will to take matters into our own hands which is the opposite of waiting and even though those consequences come God is still there when David repented God let Solomon come and be that king of peace. He let 
Joseph and Mary be descended from that mess. And David knew in his heart and said it. That baby is not going to come to me again on this earth, but I can go to it. Let us pray.